This is Larry Weissin, and you're listening to Outdoor Adventures with Jason. Welcome to Outdoor Adventures with Jason. Each week, I bring the world of hunting, fishing, and conservation to you. From the great hunting and fishing opportunities found in the Americas to the dream safaris located on the dark continent beyond. I'll introduce you to those who are already out in the field living every outdoor enthusiast's dream, as well as outfitters and gear manufacturers that can make those dreams your reality. Racks, offering the coolest bow hanger on the market. Display your bow with pride in your house, your garage, or anywhere you'd like. We carry most major brands while also offering a custom service if you have an idea or logo of your own that you'd like made into a hanger. Use them to display your traditional bow, compound bow, or even your crossbow. They also work great for hanging your hunting gear, your bags, or hats. Not to mention the design just looks plain awesome all by themselves. A Rax hanger makes for a great gift for that special hunter in your life. Go to RaxInc.com to see some of the available designs or contact us to discuss the custom hanger of your own. For listeners of the Outdoor Adventures with Jason podcast, use the promo code PODCAST and get 15% off your first order. Rax, show off your passion. Welcome to this episode of Outdoor Adventures with Jason. I am very excited today to have on somebody that completely refired my desire to go to Africa a number of years ago. As a kid growing up, you know, everybody would see from the Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdoms, and we saw Marlon Perkins and Jim Fowler chasing all those African animals around. But it wasn't until a number of years in early 2003, four that I was watching Wild TV or one of the hunting channels, and I came across a show called Safari Hunter's Journal. And today I want to welcome Steve Scott to the show. Steve, how are you doing today? Jason Gray, it's it's wonderful to be here. Thank you for asking me. Oh, it's my pleasure. As much as the other gentleman I named, you are fully responsible for kindling that desire watching you in Africa every week on TV and finally getting me to commit to booking my first safari to head over, and, and my only one so far, uh, but hopefully not the last. Well, we know it won't be your last. You know, after spending nine days in Zimbabwe, it was an absolutely amazing experience. And... You, I'm not even sure you could count the number of days you spent in Africa. You're on 14 seasons of your show so far? Probably a little past that, but I, I, I couldn't tell you how many days I've spent there. I do know that I've made 51 round-trip flights to Africa, so that's an awful lot of time <laughs> that you just don't get back. But the reward is fantastic, isn't it? It's indescribable. As much as I love hunting whitetail here in Michigan or hunting hogs in Texas where I lived or, or any of those, the ability to go out your front door of a lodge and see waterbuck, warthog, baboon, everything you know that's available in Africa standing there looking at you was just a completely eye-opening experience. Yeah, we just it, it's hard to relate being from North America because you know we have 29 species, but they're spread out. They're in such different geographical areas, different climates. And, you know, on a great day in the deer woods, you're going to see a lot of deer, a coyote, and a bobcat. And, and that's a great day. Right. And a squirrel, of course. But you know, like you said, Africa, I mean, you could be looking at a herd of buffalo that are flanked by a herd of zebra that are flanked by a herd of wildebeest. And there's a, a, a lion walking around the perimeter. I mean, it's just, it, it's just wildlife Mecca. It's, there's just no place better. And while there may be 
an animal, a species or two that would rank higher with some people. And I'm thinking about some of the, the great sheep of Asia. But mostly, for, for most people, the ultimate hunting destination is Africa. And it, it, it really makes sense because it's relatively affordable. I mean, you can pay what you want. You can you can do a hunt right now for $3,000 and, and have a, a nice bag, or you could spend a quarter of a million dollars. There's something for everyone there. And like you said, step out the door, you get in the get in the cruiser and go and you're immediately into wildlife and you just, you know, I love whitetail hunting, but you just don't get the kind of visual stimulus with whitetail hunting because, you know, you just don't see that many of them. Yeah. There was several times that they had to poke me and say, Hey, you're supposed to be shooting. Oh yeah. You know, because <laughs> it was such a, just an amazing experience having seen many of the animals in a zoo setting only to see him in the wild the very first time uh, was incredible. And my favorite animal is the wild dog of, of Africa. Oh, yeah. Had yeah. No, You're lucky to have seen those. Yes, and had no intentions of seeing them outside of the zoo. Right. The property I was on in Zimbabwe said, we have a pack of them, but there's no way we can tell you if or where we'll see them. They're just sure. very large travelers. And this particular property was, uh, as they make the conservancies in Africa, we had about 60,000 acres to hunt on out of a total of about 600,000 acres uh, nice. in southern Zimbabwe. And I was the only hunter on, on all 600,000 acres. So Were you on Save or, or Bubi Valley? Where were you? I was on the Bubiana. Okay. okay. Uh, south of, uh, I can't even think of what the little Bulawayo. town was. Bulawayo, yeah. Oh. About two and a half hours south of Bulawayo. Okay. Not right. too awful far from the border. Right, right. And it was just an amazing, and I happened to come out about 5.30 in the morning. I was standing there watching the warthogs, and there was a group of uh, water buck down by the river. And one of the gentlemen had just walked down to start the generator up for the day. He came back, and I, you know, waved good morning to him. The water buck kind of came right back in, and all of a sudden they bunched up. And I was like, me, I have no idea. I figured, okay, something got him spooked. That must have just been the smell of that guy. Well, then all of a sudden they (laughs) trucked down into the river. And here comes in single file uh, nine wild dogs. And, of course, no camera, no nothing. And I'm just yelling to the PH. I'm like, Albert, Albert, get out there. And he comes walking out like, what? I'm like, look. And he's like, oh, sweet. He he was excited not so much to see the dogs as he was excited that I got to see them. For sure, yeah. We were trying to get a yellow hyena and never had them come in, but we did have a brown hyena come in, which was an amazing sight to see. So, uh, overall wonderful trip. I'm going to encourage folks that one of the pictures I like on your website and go out to Steve Scott TV, uh, TV is you have to look close, but there's a picture of a lioness and then you look closer in her mouth and she's carrying a GoPro. And I absolutely that just love GoPro. it. I love that, that picture. My GoPro. <laughs> so lion. you've made 51 trips. Uh, not all yeah. of them. I'm assuming you went many times before you actually had a TV show. Many times, no. I started in 95, made another trip in 96, and then we started um, our outdoor guide series in 98 filming, and we went on the air in 99. And as part of that uh, offering, we made a trip for my first Cape Buffalo hunt in 99. So I went twice without a camera, but ever since then, I can't 
I can't shake them. I cannot hunt by myself. Well, that's a lot of trips. Is there, <laughs> is there any place you haven't been there yet that you'd like to go? Oh, there's lots of places. I'd really like to explore Angola uh, after their war has settled down. I think that there's good opportunities for elephants there that, that are moving back in because you've got to remember Botswana, which is just stupid with elephants because they don't have them there anymore and their overpopulation is becoming a, a chronic problem. But the next country up is the Caprivi Strip and it's, you know, 40 miles wide and then comes Angola. So it should be great elephant habitat and I'd like to see if they were moving back in. And they have supposedly there's still some giant sable there. That hasn't been confirmed, but it would it'd be interesting to find out. And then Central Africa. You know, I've I really want to spend more time in Central Africa. I've gone to Cameroon a couple of times. Once was great, once was just an awful, awful trip. But you know, there's come countries like CAR. It's just dangerous to be. And, you know, I've kind of had a change in life and I've got a family again and, you know, somebody that's dependent on me for the next 20 years or so. So it's just not as easy for me to, to take a calculated risk as, as it used to be. So there are places that I probably will never go because of the family situation, because of the political situation. But, you know, Africa's a pretty big continent. You mentioned Zimbabwe as your first destination, which is unusual because most first hunters go to South Africa or Namibia. But Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe used to be just the best. And then they had troubles and it got run into the ground. But even at its worst, in 2009, I went there a couple of times and, you know, we hunted close to the border where we could get out. It was near the election. In fact, it was within a couple of weeks of the most violent election they'd ever had. But still, we're treated well. We didn't have any problems. And in particular places, not everywhere, but in particular places, the wildlife was still abundant. And Zimbabwe is just a, a wonderful destination. You know, it, it's the kind of place, as is Zambia, as is Tanzania, if you can afford it, as is most any of these countries, certainly South Africa, you can go back and do something different every time. It's a new experience. And... It's just the the kind of thing that personally I I just don't get tired of. I mean, even when I'm going back to South Africa, I don't know how many times I've been to South Africa, there's always something there that makes the trip fresh and exciting. And if you haven't been, you're just going to be blown away. I mean, that's all I can say. You're just not going to believe how cool it is in Africa. And it was interesting. You bring that up. I didn't know. I went to Zimbabwe by myself. The outfitter that I hunted with was, he was based in Arizona, but was originally from Zimbabwe. Uh-huh. I had no idea. I mean, I knew about the government of Mugabe and what he was and wasn't doing to an extent, but, you know, I, I kind of went by the old adage, I knew just enough about the Africa to know nothing. And <laughs> once I got on the ground and I was actually staying with the folks for a few days before heading out hunting, we kind of went around Bulawayo a little bit. Very interesting city. And I never once felt threatened. I never once felt any more fear than I would if I was wandering around Flint, Michigan, or, you know, any of the other cities that have had any, any crime issues. Well, let me tell you why you didn't feel any kind of trepidation being in a a minority um, in a, a black country. It's because 
hunting brings foreign exchange. And if you know anything about Zimbabwe's troubles, they had hyperinflation where they're, I mean, they're printing hundred trillion dollar notes and they're worth nothing. So when you make the journey from Europe or the United States or Asia, wherever it might be to go to a country like Zimbabwe and you are bringing legitimate cash, those people know that you're of benefit to them. They know that you may be harvesting a problem animal, which we've done several times in Zimbabwe. The people on the ground that are neighbors with animals, and they have to live with the constant destruction of crops and the personal safety issues about living with uh, around apex predators, they understand that the hunter that comes in is going to bring good things. He's going to bring money. He's going to provide meat. He's going to provide jobs indirectly through the outfitter and that there very well could be a situation that they cannot legally rectify, like, say, an elephant coming out of Ganarazo Park every night, destroying the maze of the village field by field, night by night. They can't do anything about that. But I can pay a fairly significant fee to go in and harvest that animal and not take a thing from it, not a tusk not a tail, not a piece of skin. Just it a all picture. stays there. That's it, just a picture, and I can show you the picture. But I can also show you the picture after we took those photos that four hours later, there's nothing left but a wet spot in the sand because there were 500 people lined up in a line with their buckets and with their bags, and the butchers went in, and they started tearing that carcass down, and literally, when they're gone, there is nothing left. Everything is used. The bones, the entrails, the brain, everything. And that's not the kind of thing that mainstream media is going to tell you. They're not going to tell you that story. They're going to tell you the story of the guy who was helicoptered in to an area with a drugged animal and all hunters are bad. For every one of those, there are hundreds of thousands of ethical hunters. And what I'm trying to do in just a small way with with our program, Safari Hunters Journal, is demonstrate the benefits that tourist hunting brings to an impoverished area. I'm also trying to get people like you to go to Africa, which apparently with you, mission accomplished. It worked. (laughs) Well, and it's so true because you have a really unique and a phenomena, I guess, I, years and years ago, sitting in a college class, a biology class, I remember somebody bringing something up about hunting. It was a wildlife biology class. And a young lady, idealistic as many college kids are, stood up and said, hunting is bad. Hunting is bad. I'm a conservationist. Well, the professor turned around and said, and he, she didn't understand what the DU sign meant up on his desk, which was for Ducks Unlimited. <laughs> and he turned around and he says, well, it's an interesting take you have, but he says, you're not a conservationist. And she, she looked real. I can still remember this to this day, and this was over 30 years ago. And she looked kind of like he had just slapped her. And he said, you're a preservationist. You believe in no use of anything whatsoever. A conservationist is wise use of a resource. And not only a resource, but a, a completely renewable resource if it's used appropriately. And... I always just thought that that was probably one of the most profound things I learned in all of college. Why it stuck with me, I don't know, but it just did. And that really, very good. you know, it really carries through. I have a friend that is a PH in Botswana, 
or from you know he lives in Texas. Botswana's not much bigger than I think the state of Texas, and there's a couple hundred thousand elephants right. in there. Uh, maybe not quite that many. I think the number that they're sticking with is 130,000. They had 130,000 a couple of years ago, um, and they're not taking any out. So it's probably closer to 150. But the bottom line, Jason, if there's a serious drought, I mean, a, a real drought in that area, there's enough habitat to sustain 50,000 elephants. Right. So do the math. I mean, it's a disaster waiting to happen. And when it happens, the antis will will not take any of the blame, even though they're the ones that, I mean, literally are killing the elephants. They just haven't died yet. Well, and it appears that the I, there might be a new president in Botswana that is much more, he's realized what kind of revenue he's lost from shutting down the hunting. Well, it's not just that. It's the habitat. I mean, elephants' jobs, when they're put on this earth, are to clear forests out, to, to make open areas so the sun can come down and, and grass can grow and, and create biodiversity. That's their job. And in Botswana, in especially around the water, and in Kruger Park as well, where there's no hunting, they the elephants are so numerous that they're destroying so much vegetation. And this becomes... You know, this starts getting into symbiotic relationships because, especially in Kruger Park, vultures, which are vital to the health of an ecosystem, there are no more trees in Kruger Park that are tall enough for vultures to nest in. So they have to nest outside the park and then fly back in. Similar things are happening in Botswana in that special areas such as the Okavanga Delta, where there's going to be water all the time. Well, where do you think the elephants are going? They're going where the water is. They live in, in a desert country. Where do you think they're going? And they're providing, they're causing so much damage around these water points that there's really no more habitat. And the elephant population is growing exponentially. That's the long and the short of it. And that's why the, the president has finally stopped listening to the NGOs that whisper in his ear and, and promise that hunting uh, won't be missed. And you realize there are consequences by changing the balance of nature, which, you know, you take man out of it, you, you've done that. Right. And I don't disagree. There was a much vaunted paper thrown around in the hunting community, well, not in the hunting, but the anti-hunting community that talked about how much each particular animal was worth to a photographic uh, existence versus a hunting existence. And I said, okay, there's probably some truth to that in that one or two elephants, maybe a 60-, 70-year-old male tusker would be worth that because they could consistently take people out to photograph them. But what about those other 5,000 elephants that are in an area where nobody wants to go to, where you're not going to put a tourist for no matter what because it's it's not pretty, there's nothing to see, for whatever reason. And those elephants, they're not going to carry that same that same benefit but guess what will go there us hunters will that is very insightful jason because there's there's so much truth in that you know i've probably been in 125 or more camps uh in the last 25 years and very few of them are what i would consider a five-star tourist type of camp been in one or two but the vast majority of the places we hunt, they're very nice, but they're not going to be up to the standard of a tourist area 
that is going to charge a thousand or fifteen hundred dollars a night. So those elephants, that wildlife in that particular area, yes, you can impute a value to that based on the number of photographers and 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 what they're paying. But you take that small, small percentage of the land use out and look at what's left. And those are the places, the only tourists that go there are hunters. The only ones. Well, probably, I, I guess maybe some researchers go there as well. But they don't spend money like we do. Hunters go to the places that no one else wants to go. We provide jobs in places that are completely without employment. And then another huge irony of Africa is while these people, these indigenous folks are surrounded by wildlife, they have virtually no protein in their diet. Their entire diet consists of what we call corn. They call it maize and they grind it up into different forms of the same thing. It might be sudza or millipop or millimeal, but it's just what we would basically call grits. Exactly. That's what they eat. That's all they eat. And when I can go in and harvest an elephant that has been destroying their corn crop, their maize crop, and provide for that family a month's worth of protein, I I, I mean, you ask those folks, and I can show you videos of people that we brought. I killed a buffalo in Zimbabwe a couple of years ago, and we took it to a group. And, you know, these people just don't run into folks like you and I. I mean, you know, they are so far back in the bush that they just don't have a lot of interaction outside of their tribal unit. Well, we come in and they, they know the drill. They've seen this before. They start singing and dancing and they know what's about to happen. And then they start, we start bringing the meat out and they are like a kid going to Disney world because they don't have, and hunters provide where the tourists and the photographic folks you know, God bless them, they're, they're helping, but they're only helping in a small area. And when you impute what they do in 2% of the country to the other 60% that is Bush, it just doesn't add up. And it's 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 dishonest is what it is. But, you know, people have uh, quit. The, the anti-hunters haven't cared about honesty in my lifetime. You know, it's it's whatever lie they need to tell to make you emotionally adverse to hunting. Because if you want to talk fact, if you want to talk science, I'm going to win 100% of the time. And if you don't put emotion into the conversation, in the conversation that you and I have on the plane going over, you and I just met, you don't know anything about hunting, by the time we land, you're going to understand that what I do in Africa or South America or Asia or, or, or in Oklahoma, what I do here is beneficial for both wildlife and for people in need. Because not only do I help control population, and when I say I, I mean this metaphorically as all of us, we also provide a significant amount of fresh protein to people in need in America as well. There's no doubt one of the most renewable resources now considered, or for many years considered a pest, has been the feral hog. You're in Oklahoma, you have them. Yeah. I was in Texas yeah, for 13 for sure. years. We were overloaded with them. And yeah. I know every f- spring, I believe, there was a three-county area where they would get out all the guys, with you know, men and women with their dogs. They would run hogs over a weekend, and they would amass somewhere in the neighborhood of ten to 12,000 pounds of pork. And that went yeah. and was shipped off to soup kitchens, you know, and, and places to feed the hungry. And wherever else 
that the protein could be utilized. And that's in America where we have a fairly abundant and uh, easily accessible source to food. Carry that to an area where, you know, again, I was in Zimbabwe, as you have been, and to go into a supermarket, what they consider a supermarket (laughs) versus what we consider, not even close. Uh, I'm not a huge grit fan. I eat them. But when I was in Zimbabwe, you betcha I ate a lot of sudza. Um, yes, you did. So there wasn't much else, was there? <laughs> well, it was funny. I shot a giraffe, which tends to drive people insane. And when they cleaned that giraffe up, they gave the tracker the heart. And it's a big heart. It not only was it's a it, lot of meat, right? But it, it sat in the back of the truck all day while we drove around. It was black. <laughs> and I looked at uh, one of my friends there. I says, "He can eat that." And they're like, oh, yeah, he'll just chop it up, throw it in a pot with some onions and tomatoes. And, you know, he'll be he'll be the big, big guy on campus tonight around the camp because everybody's going to love having that heart. And, and these are guys that were employed and had a ration of meat. So it was just a really unique. I did have to laugh. I my one of my favorite pictures in Africa has nothing to do with the wildlife. And it was on a we came across a poaching patrol you know the anti-poaching patrol uh-huh. anti-poaching. and the one of the guys in there had his green uniform on you know he was carrying a rifle and was wearing wingtips and i looked down at his feet and i'm like <laughs> i looked over and everybody else got boots on and so all of a sudden they started talking and i think it was shona is what they spoke in that area and uh i think that's right he said oh yeah his his soles came off of his his boots so they were being repaired and all he had left was either barefoot, which he didn't want to go where there might be snares and, and snakes and so forth, or these wingtips. <laughs> so I was like, that's great. you know, that's, that's utilization at its best. You know, I mean, that's, you use what you got. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So with all these trips you do to Africa, one of the things you get a lot of time sitting on a plane to do besides sleep is you get to do a lot of writing and you're a prolific writer with the NRA and tell us a little bit about the Outdoor Speakers Bureau, which project that you're involved with. Okay, well, I'm happy to. Uh, Outdoor Speakers Bureau isn't so much about writing. It's more of a, well, what it is, it's, it's a speakers bureau. It's, it's, a, it's a market for people that are in need of an outdoor-themed speaker. And you know, I'm thinking about the DU banquets, the Safari Club banquets, the the wild turkey banquets, where whenever a local group wants to have a speaker, you know, I did that for a while for the Oklahoma chapter. And, you know, you just don't know where to go. And so OutdoorSpeakersBureau.com, we have, I don't know, 25 or so vetted speakers. You know, some of them are like Craig Bodding. Larry Wysoon. Yeah, Larry's on there. Thanks for reminding me. Ivan Wade Car- Boggs, Ivan. Yeah, Ivan's on there. Jay Novacek. There's Al Smith. There's a num. Who's that? Al Smith. Jay Allen Smith. Oh yeah, he cracks me up. <laughs> okay, all right. I was going through some of the folks yeah, that have been on the show. Good. Yeah, yeah. He's uh he's definitely a uh, character, and he's a good speaker as well. But the point is, there's a lot of folks on there, and they use Outdoor Speakers Bureau. As, as just basically their agent. If you are interested in somebody, you can look at our roster. I can give you an idea of what their fee would be. They'd be open for an offer if you know they could take it or not, uh, based on you know 
what their schedule is and what they want to do. But basically, we operate as a, a matchmaking service to provide a, a, a speaker for a an outdoor-based entity uh, that's going to talk about something you're interested in. Oh, fantastic. So that, that's kind of a new thing that we've been working on for a while. But the show season's coming up, and we'll be putting out stuff about that soon. You, you you mentioned writing. One thing that I am spending a little bit more time on than I expected to be is is our Outfitter Wire. Outfitter Wire is it's a vehicle for hunting, fishing, adventure sports, birding outfitters to be able to communicate with a you know fairly outdoor adept audience to communicate stuff about their operation. You get information from TV shows, you go to trade shows, you see people, but this is a, a another way to be able to evaluate what somebody has to offer, whether it might be something that's of benefit to you. And I won't give anybody additional publicity on this because uh, you know we represent sure. all of the outfitters. But you know, I've got a guy who specializes in African hunts, and he has a a package where you can a call package where you can you can call something like 18 animals for $3000. I've got another outfitter that has an $8000 Cape Buffalo. And that sounds like a lot of money. 8000 is a lot of money, but you will not find a Cape Buffalo cheaper than that right now. Another one has a $9500 Buffalo in Zambia and you can add a sable to that for $4000. Wow. You know, that's $13,500. Five years ago, you couldn't get a sable for thirteen five. You know, economies of scale are kicking in. You know, breeding programs, there's a lot. And the disparity between the dollar and the rand. It, there are opportunities for someone who didn't think that they could afford an international hunting trip. You actually can. And I was exactly in that boat. I knew someday I wanted to go to Africa. And... I did two things that would force me to follow up on the dream. One was I bought a 375. Now, I bought a 375 that kicked like a mule, and I put a muzzle brake on it and then gave it away <laughs> when I started getting real guns. Because this was not a very good gun to shoot, but I bought a 375 to use as motivation. And then I joined my local safari club chapter, and it turned out I ended up in Africa a year later buying a a hunt at a men's luncheon that you know nobody bid on but me and that got me going and then the next year you know well i wasn't gonna go for a few more years because i needed to save some money and there was another package and nobody bought it so i bought it and went two years in a row and and i was hooked and i didn't know anything jason i was working out to get my legs in shape in case I needed to run from a lion in South <laughs> Africa. I mean, I didn't know anything. And then I think back after having some experience, how I was, and yeah, I'm fairly knowledgeable about it now, but what we want to do with in everything we do, but specifically with the Safari Hunters Journal television show, is show that people like you and like me, if we have that dream, that it's obtainable, and it's probably a lot more obtainable than you think. There is a lot of competition for clients in Africa now. Competition breeds lower prices, and there has, for, for playing the game, there has never been a better opportunity 
to hunt in Africa. Dangerous game prices are high. There's no question about it. You typically won't go to Africa and have a lion and leopard on your quota for the first time. It's just probably not prudent. It's not the safest thing to do. It, it's just it's probably better off that you you have a couple of planes game hunts under your belt before you start sitting in a leopard blind for two weeks. I just want to, to convey to your listeners that if you have any interest in Africa at all, and I don't have a dog in this fight, if you have any interest at all, this is a great time to, to find out about about someone to go with and explore it. Yeah, I, if anybody's, you know, is interested and that's really sparked an interest at all, go to theoutfitterwire.com, and across the top it'll say current issue. Click on current issue and just read through some of the items. Uh, you'll really want to subscribe. And for outfitters that listen, if you want to be featured, whether you're in Australia, whether you're in Africa, whether you are in Europe, South Africa, or South America, or North America, go to the contact page on theoutfitterwire.com and submit a request to talk with them about getting your operations uh, included in this. It's around the world. You you hit it on the head. I know I've got listeners in Australia that run hunting operations and New Zealand, so they they religiously listen. So there's great ways, and and you hit the nail on the head with the the drop in the rand, which is the South African dollar. There's never since I've been watching for the last decade, never been a more affordable time to hunt Cape Buffalo if you want to break into the the big five, the dangerous game. Yeah. Yeah, and, and Buffalo is going to be, across the board, going to be the least expensive of, of all the animals. Now, you can get into a, a tuskless elephant in Zimbabwe uh, for a pretty good price, but across the board, Buffalo are the, the least expensive of the dangerous, uh, the big five, frankly, the dangerous seven as well. They've been very successful at breeding them, building the herds up, and so there's just, there's a plethora of them, and they, they do well, whether it's, as long as they have a water source, they can live in some yeah. somewhat arid, but I know, and you've been probably to South Africa more than I obviously have talked with folks, that drought over the last few years hurt them a little bit, which has helped bring oh, the prices bye. down bye. as well. I would like to go to South Africa next only because I'd like my dollars to be spent there to help these outfitters that I've personally come to know that are a great group of people. Well, that's right. That's right. Some of them didn't make it. The ones that have survived, you know, they're they're lean and and they're needing to build up the reserves again. And that's, I mean, that's why the prices are there. You know, there's some, there's some difficulties going on in South Africa right now. Politically, you're not sure what the future is going to hold. And there's talk of expropriation of land. And I think there's going to be a little bit of that. But I can't see that a economically advanced country as South Africa is going to have the kind of difficulty that Zimbabwe had. And with that said, I had in Zimbabwe often when, during, during their troubles. So productive land like hunting farms, you're not going to see that too much of that taken off the table. So the tourist dollars that are coming in, I'll put it this way. I've taken my not yet two-year-old baby to Africa twice in the last 12 months. So that should kind of give you an idea of how much concern I have for uh, tourist safety. Right. And you're spot on that you can spend... Oh, well, I'm not I'm not talking a do-it-yourself type elk hunt. I'm, I'm using more of an outfitter as a guide because that's a fair equivalent to Africa. But an outfitted, yeah, for, for outfitted sure. elk hunt between Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, 7,000, to the sky's the limit, depending on the place you're staying for one right. animal. Right. 
yes, I have to buy a plane ticket to South Africa, but as you said, four thousand dollars, five thousand dollars, and plus a plane ticket of a fifteen hundred, two thousand, depending on where you're at, and I could conceivably come home with four, five, six, seven animals, depending on that's right where I'm at and what I want to go after. So. It's just if you really want to, if you want to shoot, if you want to get in there and, and see the different animals and also have some access with South Africa to places like Cape Town, um, which I bring that up because I want to go there to see the sharks jumping offshore. <laughs> so I, I've put a little bit of thought into this, but there's one thing on the horizon and you're involved with it that could really mean a huge difference for not only wildlife in Africa, but around the world is the burgeoning economy that's been in coming up in China and the freeing of Chinese citizens to, to do more traveling. And you're going to be involved with uh, our, I want you to explain the China hunting show that's coming up in 2019 in June of 2019 and what exactly that is and how you're involved. I'd be, be happy to Jason. China's a, a different animal. They deal in free market, but they're still heavily government. Uh, governmental controls. And in 16, I believe, I could be off by a year, they have five-year economic plans. And in the most recent Communist Party economic plan, they made hunting a viable, legal economic activity. China as a destination, they've got some things. They're, the the thing that they have is probably the, is most attractive, would bring the most hunters, is blue sheep. And they closed Blue Sheep in 2006. And they didn't close it because of conservation issues or, or population issues. They closed it because the average Chinese person was not allowed to hunt. And yet these foreigners were coming in and they're able to, to hunt these uh, animals of, of China. And the government just didn't want to hear about it anymore. It wasn't that there was a problem with the species. They just said... I'm going to make this political problem go away, and we're going to close hunting down. So they did, and that was in 2006. So 10 years or so later, the Chinese government is not expecting as much growth. They are beginning to mature as an economy, and they need other sources of revenue. So they have made hunting a legal activity for citizens, and believe it or not, they have a feral hog problem. And right now, Chinese people in the country are killing feral hogs because they're doing damage just like they do in Texas. It's a little problematic because they don't have access to, to firearms. They have to be, it has to kind of be an overseen by the police, but bows and spears and things like that they can use. So that is open and there is obviously a growing middle and upper class there of people that can travel outside the country to engage in various activities, and, and hunting is becoming more and more prevalent. So I have been working with a gentleman from, uh, from China for several years on a couple of different projects, and I met him at trade shows. And we got to talking one night, and we kind of came up with the idea about putting a trade show together, an SCI or Dallas Safari Club type of trade show in Beijing. And we're you know, kind of worried about how it would go over, if people would attend. Well, it turns out China has an international boat show in Shanghai, and they've had it for, this will be the 24th year. And we have procured 100 booths 
inside of the Chinese International Boat Show that has fishing, has RV, has camping, has trekking, has a lot of different aspects to the outdoors, more of an outdoor show now. And we have a hunting zone, an area where there's going to be hunting booths, and we are going to make available to the Chinese people the outfitters of the world that are interested in exhibiting to Chinese uh, citizens that are interested in, in hunting. And this is going to be more for international hunting more than hunting in China. So there's going to be outfitters. You know, we have outfitters from the U.S. We have outfitters from, from different parts of Asia. We have lots of outfitters from Africa. And you were kind of alluding to, to that aspect of it. There is a, a, a moral and philosophical issue with lions in South Africa. Lions have been bred in captivity for hunting. It has, you know, on one hand, it has increased the number of lions that are available. Lions are a, a delicate species. Their, their numbers are in decline. They're subject to things like feline HIV and can, can be wiped out naturally in the field by disease. Probably know about infanticide and that uh, when one uh, pride male is deposed, before the cubs get to be a certain age, the new lion that comes in will kill all the cubs in order to bring the females into season so he can breed them. And there have been some reforms in the, the age structure of the, the lions that, that we can harvest. But all that put together, you've got this, this Achilles heel of hunting. That yeah, we bred these for hunting. Well, how is that different than a kudu or a sable that we bred for hunting? The lion has a different feeling. It's an iconic animal, and people want to use that as an, as an example of how hunting is bad because these you know, noble, brave, put whatever adjective you want to put on, these lions are being mistreated and then they're being shot. And, and frankly, some of the conditions that some lion breeders utilized were, were abysmal, and they should be taken out. They shouldn't be allowed to participate. But now the U.S. and Europe and a lot of places have said no more lions in South Africa unless they're wild or wild managed. And wild managed is a term of art, and it just means they're out hunting on their own on a big area. And so you've got 6,000 or so lions that are need to be fed every day. What do you do with them? The Chinese could solve that problem because the Chinese, the lions that are destroyed because they don't want to feed them anymore. The bones go to China. They have a completely different take on medicine and their, their, their cultural norms are different than ours. And if we can open up the China hunters to the African market, the lion problem will be solved. And aside from the lions, you're going to in, have an influx of hunters and money that are going to start soaking up some of this excess inventory that has been hurting the South African operators. You'll have people that are coming in and are, are are happy to spend money, and obviously that's that's good for for everybody, including wildlife, because it provides a continued incentive to provide habitat and care for those species. What our show will do, where any any outfitter that is interested in exhibiting at the show, there will be a an interpreter at every booth because. We can't depend on language skills to, to, to be congruent. You're going to have to have somebody there to, to help us speak to people that are speaking Mandarin. We've provided all the amenities that we can to be able to actually sell hunts. And 
we had 35,000 people go through the, the boat show last year. They expect at least that many this year. So there's going to be foot traffic. And if an outfitter is interested in, in exhibiting chinahuntingshow.com, all the information is there. And I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it, Jason, because this is, I think this is a project that is going to have long-term positive ramifications for both the hunting industry and for wildlife. And I agree. I was just kind of looking at a map. It's, it's for most people that have been to Africa, it's no secret that Chinese businesses are very active in Africa, in the, especially in the mining community. At least that's what I saw in Zimbabwe. And I think oh, that's right. fairly consistent from, say, Kenya on south to South Africa. So for places like Kenya, Uganda, Rwanda, Angola, these areas that are heavily mirrored in war, extremely poor and could use money and could use honestly something to focus on besides whatever factions are warring with each other that could seriously open up millions of acres of land to preservation. Once you preserve the land in its forested States, then you can conserve the wildlife. And I think, you know, you and I know this, many of the folks listening to the show know this, as you go over there and hunt, you just don't go and randomly shoot whatever animal you want. You, <laughs> that is correct. You're shooting whatever your pH tells you to. So when you do that, one old stallion might die or a young mare might die, but that allows 27 others to be fed and, and carry on the genes and the genetics. Uh, if it's a zebra, right. if it's a kudu, you know, I was at, where I was at in Zimbabwe, there is a decline in the giraffe population in places like Kenya and many of these other areas. The area where I have was one of the few that had imported a giraffe years ago from Namibia. And they were to the point now where they were going to call 55 giraffe off of that property because there was too many, but oh, for sure. Yeah. There's no money to move them anywhere else. And it's no, there's nowhere. What, and what a lot of folks don't understand is when you're walking down the street in Zimbabwe or you're walking in Johannesburg, there isn't a kudu standing there on the corner looking at people go by. It's a major metropolitan city. Wildlife is reserved to the parks and the hunting conservancies. Outside of that, you don't see a whole heck of a lot of it, except the very small animals. Right. It's it's much-needed dollars. Um, what you're doing with the Chinese show, and I notice every booth is getting it, like you said, every booth is getting one interpreter. They're getting power. So if you're an outfitter that's kind of concerned going, geez, I don't speak Mandarin, don't worry. You'll have somebody there to help you. And I'm assuming, where do you fly into, Beijing? Uh, it's actually in Shanghai. Oh, in Shanghai. Even better. Yeah. There's just about flights from anywhere in the world to there. So, so they have two international airports. Yeah, so it's, it's very much a, a destination that not only once they allow the hunting in China, because all China has to do is look north of its border to Mongolia to see the benefits there. And right. are the blue sheep that are in China, I, I would guess they are, but the blue sheep in China are probably similar, if not the same, to what they have in the Pakistan to hunt since they border. They're the same. The same. The only difference, there's two differences. Uh, one is the sheep in China tend to be at lower elevations. When you go in Pakistan, you're going to be climbing and it's high. The sheep in China are typically around 8,000 feet, and that is much more manageable than, you know, if they're at 11 or 
or 13 or whatever the case may be. The other thing is these sheep haven't been hunted since 2006. So there are going to be some snorters <laughs> the first couple of hunts. There's going to be, you know, quite likely a world record will, will come from one of the first hunts. And, and I've had some dealings with the Chinese Wildlife and Conservation Association and they are actually marketing a uh, hunt to fund their conservation association that includes blue sheep and, and Tonkin. If someone was interested in that, the money is stupid, uh, but somebody may want to, to spend it to hunt the first blue sheep. And if there was some interest, uh, you could go on any one of my websites that we talked about today, but TV, and just send me a note that you're interested and then give you the details because I don't want to, I don't want to do it publicly. Cause no, that's understandable. <laughs> the, the money is pretty, is pretty high, but to be the first to harvest a blue sheep that in a population that hasn't been hunted in uh, 12 years, that's an that opportunity that doesn't come around every day. Yeah. There should be pretty much target rich and it's been <laughs> <laughs> the, the blue sheep in Pakistan. I, I think they do eight or 10 tags a year there, but that was a decade ago. That animal was darn near uh, non-existent in Pakistan. It was almost gone. And right. just the the fact of walking in, the gentlemen, that, the, the men that control the villages and control the territories, and they now actively protect these, you can see it happen. Uh, it's the same as when you go to Greenland to shoot a muskox. The muskox that were brought in there and, and have built up the herds there have been protected by the natives to become a very viable source of income for them. So right. it's a proven process. The North American system of game management works, and it's just a matter of getting it to be exported. And as you said, for anybody listening, if you know somebody they might not like to hunt, just don't make them an anti-hunter. Talk to them. Well, that's right. Take that's them a right. package of beef or, or venison or um, both or wild. Take them some type of wild game and share it with them. Take them some fish. Invite them over for dinner. You know, show them how to cook it. Uh, I, I hear from everybody, oh, I don't like it as gamey. Well, that's usually because of the, the handling of the meat. But if it's gotten that's cold, right. cleaned, and gotten on ice, for the most part, it's a little bit different when you're in areas that don't have ice, but for the most part, I find anybody to question that that's not as good or better than any of the, the high-end beefs that they've had. So, yeah. Well, Steve. I agree. We've gone over a lot of stuff. You know, I'm going to have links in the show notes for anybody listening. You'll be able to jump right to stevescott.tv or his Hunting Expo in China, Outdoor Speakers Bureau, or the Outfitters Wire. Uh, they will all be there so you can link on them. If you're an outfitter, I would encourage you to look at the, the Chinese one. That could be a very big boon for your business at some point as you be one of the first in there, not try to catch up to the people that have already built the loyal clientele. Yeah, it's brand new, that's for sure. <laughs> you know, and I was amazed at the numbers that you have written down here, not cost-wise, because those I think are actually pretty darn inexpensive for booth space. But what I was looking at was the number that 130 million Chinese in 2007 traveled abroad. Yeah. You know, yeah. 400 yeah, million. That's a third of our country. Right. <laughs> 400 million of them are part of the burgeoning middle class. These are people that will have, not all of them, but if heck, if 
5% of them had the ability and desire to go to Africa. That would solve many issues or come to the United States. I think it's going to be a much larger future part of the world as uh, more and more travel is done. It's just an amazing idea to think about and the, the potential benefits that it brings along. So I really appreciate it. I hope if anybody has questions for you, they can jump out and they can see you on your Instagram page, which is at Steve Scott TV, or they can go to your website, which is stevescott.tv. And I'll have links to all of this in the show notes. So don't hesitate to reach out, ask questions, uh, check out the outfitterwire.com. I think you're going to find that, again, I've tried to tell folks this, a plains game hunt to get yourself used to hunting in Africa is good time you're going to have, and you're going to be far, far impressed with the cost. So I really appreciate your time, uh, and I hope you have a great my day pleasure. today. Thank you, Jason. Thanks for having me. It was my pleasure. You take care, and again, I, I really thank you for your time. You bet. Come early spring, it's getting green, Fisher on the bed. Hear those turkeys gobble It's ringing in my head The winter rides bass boat Here comes another year Yeah, we command the outdoors around here Oh, we command the outdoors Yeah, we command the outdoors come summertime we're feeling fine fishing on the lake flipping jigs and Carolina rigs from early morning till real late bonfires on creek bank kick back a couple beers yeah we command the outdoors around here yeah, we command the outdoors. Yeah, we command the outdoors. Next year's does until you know winter's on the way. Brushing blinds and deer stands. The fever starts to Creek. Fill our freezers full of ducks, lots of tender deer. Yeah, we command the outdoors around here. Yeah, we, we command the outdoors. Yeah, we, we command the outdoors. So grab your guns, shells, boys. Put on your camouflage. Cause we command the outdoors around here. We command the outdoors.